Hello, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and this is Oral Valley Catholic, and I'm Father John Arnold. In the Gospel, Mary said, How can this be since I do not know man? See, one of the mysteries of Scripture is Mary's perpetual virginity. That is, that Mary was virgin before, during, and after her birth of Jesus. Well, she, he uh, gestated in the womb. Catholics believe in the resurrection, grace, the sacraments, and God's answer to prayers. But sometimes some Catholics balk at doctrines that seem to defy the realities of the natural world. Friends, all the mysteries of God defies the reality of the natural world as atheists see nature. God is not just another thing in creation. Creation is contained in God. God makes it, but God is not anything that's made. So when the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's Luke chapter 1. So the Annunciation, Mary ever virgin, Mary perpetual virgin, her yes, her fiat to God in a message delivered by an angel all about the mysterious preparation and silence for Christmas. It is a mystery, as if material reality as we understand it is only a veil obscuring the vision of the fundamentally real, that is, the face of God, the, that which is the ground of all existence. The most fundamental question is, that anybody can ask is, why does anything exist at all? Just think of it, this is one of those things Thomas Aquinas, I think, talked about, or uh, Aristotle, I don't know. If everything we know goes in and out of existence, doesn't it logically follow that given an infinite period of time, that everything would go out of existence at the same time? I mean, if Material reality is a finite reality. An infinite reality is something unimaginably greater than that. Then if things come in and out of being over an infinite progression, well, at some point, everything just goes out of being. At least that's how the argument goes. How can you know? But the answer that Scripture gives is that God always was, always is, and always will be. He is existence itself in eternity. Time, change, is something that we experience. It's not part of the nature of God according to our theological and philosophical understandings of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Physicists have their understanding of the laws of nature, to be sure, and and they bring a real predictability into life. But God has his, and God understands the laws of nature in a way that's much more fundamental than probably the human mind is capable of. See, God is the creator, has always had a plan. He's prepared us since the beginning of time for his revelation. 
See, the prophets have spoken in the first reading uh, from 2 Samuel and each of the Sundays of Advent, they're all, the other three Sundays were from Isaiah, are all part of that plan, the prophetic voice from the Old Testament. That's why if you don't understand the Old Testament, you can't understand who Jesus is. The part that prepares us for the revelation of the Son of God, that's the part we call the Old Testament. And when Jesus and his disciples and St. Paul were talking about scriptures, that's what they meant. And so let's take a deeper dive into that understanding of reality today. The Messiah, the son of David, the son of God. Uh, you know, Joseph, it says in the scriptures today, is the descendant of the almost, but not quite, defunct royal family of Israel. Mary, a virgin, was betrothed in a marriage that was not yet consummated to Joseph of the house of David. Betrothal was actually being married, but the couple didn't yet live together. During the betrothal period of time, the man was supposed to go and prepare a place for the bride. And then, at the wedding celebration, the marriage becomes uh, complete and consummation happens. And so though, although Mary is married to Joseph, the marriage isn't consummated. That's why the scriptures say in Matthew that when Joseph found out about the pregnancy, that he thought that he would divorce her. Um, we have different marriage customs now, but this refers back to a first century Anno Domini uh, marriage customs in uh, Israel. You know, interestingly, to be talking about St. Joseph, Mary, and our blessed Lord uh, is a great way to, to bring Advent to a close because the Holy Father has just proclaimed this year as the year of St. Joseph. And so to start out by talking about St. Joseph, the house of David, the adoptive father of Jesus, that Jesus truly becomes part of the house of David, although Joseph is his father really in the moral order because in the order of generation, uh, he's the son of God. Luke emphasizes Joseph's family because his adoption of Jesus fulfills this ancient prophecy to King David. So in the first reading this Sunday, Nathan prophesied King David as recounted in 2 Samuel that God would raise up a, quote, heir sprung from your loins, end quote, and David's throne will be eternal. Gabriel's message to Mary has four standout elements that really track the very prophecy of 2 Samuel chapter 7 so that you as the reader understand that Luke is saying that the angel's message is referring back uh, to that prophetic utterance from Nathan 10 centuries before Jesus' birth. And here are the four elements. Number one, that Mary's child will be great. Number two, that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. That's the messianic allusion. Number three, he'll be called the son of the most high. And number four, that his kingdom will have no end. It'll be eternal. Now those four elements, his greatness, the throne, his identity as son of God, and his everlasting kingdom track a lot of Old Testament prophecy. 
2 Samuel is not the only place that the prophecy is made. The prophecy is also part of the Torah. It appears in Torah in Genesis 49.10 when it's talking about uh, Jacob's sons. There is no Davidic kingship yet there, but it says that the mace, the mace is a war weapon, will never depart between the, from between the thighs of Judah. So he'll always have the scepter of power. And David is a Judean, Joseph is Judean, Mary is a Judean, uh, Jesus is a Judean. That same prophecy is in Numbers chapter 22, 24, also part of the Torah, and it comes out of the mouth of a Gentile, um, uh, Balaam, who is the prophet that the king Balak wants to prophesy doom on the people of Israel as they're heading uh, for, for the Canaan land. But Balak, uh, Balaam can't out of his mouth because he's a true prophet. He has to prophesy a blessing on Israel. And once again, that this scepter will not depart from Judah. So it's shot through the Old Testament. It shows up in the Psalm today, in Psalm 89. I'll read it to you. <clears throat> I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. Forever will I confirm your posterity and establish your throne for all generations. He shall say of me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my savior. Forever I will maintain my kindness toward him, and my covenant with him stands firm. And so the voice is between God and this son of David, that Israel expected a Messiah is clear in the Old Testament. That's why we read it throughout the year. Now the disciples believe Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, the Holy Family, was part of God's plan to reveal himself to us. Uh, that's why the, we have the infancy narratives in, um, in Luke and Matthew. But it's clear in other parts of the New Testament, especially in the earliest preaching of the New Testament, as we have uh, in today's second reading from St. Paul. And now we're gonna turn there. St. Paul is, we don't spend enough time talking about him, but this is authentic Catholicism from the very first days of, uh, of the preaching of the gospel. For St. Paul, the word gospel in Greek, evangelion, which means good news, is also synonymous, synonymous with the word he uses, mysterion or mystery. Paul preached about the mysterion, which is where the English word mystery comes from, and it means something hidden or concealed, and it's derived like God's plan made known in the prophets as being something hidden during the time of the Old Testament, but revealed through the person of Christ in the church. That's how Paul, this devout Pharisee, looks at it. Well, now it's interesting. Did you know in the first three centuries, I guess, of Christian history, Everybody worshipped in uh, Greek. And it wasn't until uh, later that it all started to get translated into Latin. So in Latin, the word used to translate mysterion is the word sacramentum, from which we take sacrament. This word mysterion is really sprinkled throughout the New Testament. If you want to see all the citations, just look at the podcast notes. But you know, the Christians did, the Latin-speaking Christians, did not make the word sacramentum up to translate mystery. 
Instead, it came from a well-known usage in the military and civil law in Latin. And in the military, it's called the Sacramentum Militiae. You can see an article there, on, again, if you go to the podcast notes. And it was used with recruits into the Roman army who swore an oath of allegiance and then received a mark, such as a tattoo or a brand on their body, and a new name. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like when the nun or your RE teacher said that baptism left a permanent mark on you, confirmation a permanent mark on you? It was this Roman conception to bring this Greek ideal, this mystery that was made present in the human body when you were initiated into the Catholic faith. Sacramentum also carried legal connotations associated with funds held in a legal case under a sworn oath. We'd say it was a, a fiduciary duty, like in a, tri, in a title company, that someone has a duty to protect those uh, funds. That's also a sacramentum. So sacrament is tied up with oath of allegiance, it's tied up with mark, it's tied up with holding something, uh, in like a contractual situation, like a covenant. You know, Christianity so dominated the Roman Empire that we no longer think of the military and legal meanings of sacrament, though it had for Romans of those centuries. But the Christians understood whose kingdom they lived in and whose kingdom they were passing through. The Christian idea of mysterion or sacramentum uh, connotes something secret with being revealed. It connotes this whole idea of this oath, this covenant. And you see it again in um, both the gospel, Mark chapter four, verses 11, where Jesus talks about the mystery of kingdom of God has been granted to you. But to those outside, everything comes in parables. There's a truth for the people in the church and then the people outside the church they just don't see it because the mystery's not been revealed to them. That's why when you talk to an atheist, you live in the same world, but you see it two completely different ways. Uh, in Colossians, another one of the Pauline writings, the, it says, the mystery hidden from the ages and from generations past has now been manifested to God's holy ones. And so that the idea in the New Testament is when you're brought into the church and you have the gift of faith, all these mysteries are revealed, and they're leading to that divine mystery, which is the book of the Apocalypse, right? Which means to have the veil torn back, a sense of the destiny of the human race. Because just like God prepared his people for his Messiah, God's preparing us for the, for the second coming of Jesus. You know, the sense of the Greek word mysterion changes from something hidden to something being revealed as in the apocalypse. But if you think about it, it's the mystery of God, the material veil that we see that is pulled back, revealing this covenant through Jesus and the sacraments. In Latin and Greek, there's this direct relationship between covenant, sacrament, and oath, that in turn becomes initiation into the church, replacing circumcision. But also keeping in mind that this veil of materiality has been pulled back. So baptism is a doorway 
into the next world. Confirmation is the reception of the Spirit of God. Eucharist is a participation in the Jesus that is risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. Um, so the revelation isn't just intellectual. The revelation is that we are dwelling in the kingdom of heaven now, even as we dwell on this earth. Well, St. Paul, when calling the Romans to repentance in the second reading, was preparing them for this mystery that was revealed in the conception, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the Son of David, the Son of God. So St. Paul, the devout Pharisee said, who probably never thought of himself as a Christian, but thought of himself as a Jew, he said that the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed through the prophetic writings, is made to, known to all the nations. The mission of the Messiah, according to Paul, aims higher than the military defeat of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, for the Christians, is just small potatoes. The church's mission is commanded by Christ and now revealed is to go out to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. That's what St. Uh, Paul says. And that, going out to preach repentance, to bring out the obedience of faith, is what we know as the Great Commission. So Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, at the very end, easy to find, it's the last chapter, last verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Because remember in Matthew's gospel, Jesus goes up on the mountain and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, for righteousness. In chapter 25 he says, when you saw me hungry, thirsty, naked, or in prison and visited me or gave me something to drink, you did it to me when you did it to the least of my brethren. This is Jesus' law. So in Romans 16, which is the second reading for today, Paul also says, according to this revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages, I want to focus on the word secret. The Greek word is word meaning silent. Um, so think of what we're preparing for at Christmas. Jesus is born in silence in a stable. Remember our hymn, Silent Night? Think about these passages as you're listening to those hymns. Because in the Catholic Bible, the part non-Catholic Christians call the Apocrypha, but the Book of Wisdom, which was um, always used by the early Christians in the first 15 centuries, it says in the Wisdom of Solomon, Chapter 18, verse 6. Here's another prophetic utterance that if, unless you understand Jesus, you don't see it. But here's what it says. For while gentle silence enveloped all things, and night in its swift course was now half gone, thy all-powerful word leapt from heaven, from the royal throne, into the midst of that lamb that was doomed. So why do we always think of Jesus born at night, born into silence with only the angels and the shepherds because this is the image the Old Testament gives of the divine word of God. You know, the first Vatican Council, we think all the time about Vatican II back in the 60s. A lot of us lived through it. Even for me, I was a kid. 
the Vatican I uh, occurred from 1869 to 1870. And it was largely called as a response to the disbelief in the growing atheism of the 19th century following the, the French Revolution, which was a huge cultural cataclysm. And Vatican I, the fathers of that council, wanted to remind the world that Christianity is not a man-made construct, but is founded on divine revelation. We didn't make Jesus up. Catholicism is this human response to divine revelation. At the basis of it is divine law. But, you know, we do have human customs in it, too. It's not one or the other, but it's divine revelation entering in uh, to human existence. This is what we mean when we say that uh, Christianity is divine, divinely revealed religion. Uh, and uh, most of the uh, Christianity is really Judaism brought forth. And so Vatican I wanted to point out that there are interior reasons for believing uh, in God and that Jesus is his Christ. Um, just like I said, why does anything exist? Why doesn't everything go out of existence? What keeps us here? But that's an intellectual process. What Vatican I wanted to point out is prophecy and fulfillment of prophecy, miracles, the existence of the church, the existence of the Jews. I mean, everybody's tried to knock the Jews off, but they're still here. See, this is amazing stuff. None of the Roman gods are here. None of the Babylonian gods. The Egyptians, their gods are gone. Uh, even um, Islam is basically an offshoot of a Christianity and Judaism. Jesus and Mary are both talked about in the Quran because Muhammad had to explain why they weren't God. You know, so make of Islam what you want to make of it. But the fact that the prophets foretold Jesus. And so when the Council Fathers in Vatican wrote, one wrote in the Dogmatic Constitution on the Catholic Faith, chapter 3, and this was 1870, they wrote, in order that the obedience of our faith should be constant with reason, that harkens back to St. Paul in the second reading, God has willed that the, to the internal aids of the Holy Spirit, there should be joined external proofs of his revelation, namely divine facts, especially miracles and prophecies, which, because they clearly show forth the omnipotence and infinite knowledge of God, are most certain signs of a divine revelation and are suited to the intelligence of all. That is, somebody, some great mind is behind the prophecies and the fulfillment of it. Someone has to understand how the world is unfolding. And this, according to that, to the scriptures in Vatican I, is God. Wherefore, not only Moses and the prophets, but especially Christ the Lord himself, produced many genuine miracles and prophecies. And we read concerning the apostles. But they're going forth, preached everywhere, the Lord working with all and confirming the word with signs that followed. And again, it's written, we have the more firm prophetical word, whereunto you do well to attend as to a light that shineth in a dark place. So that's Vatican I. Well, so they're saying with the internal assistance of the Holy Spirit, God has given us 
to bolster our internal disposition, external motives of credibility for believing in the truth of Christianity, principally the stuff that just says nature isn't what you think it is. Materiality is a veil, ripped open by the resurrection and the ascension, by the appearance of Mary at Lourdes and at Fatima, by God answering prayers, by the sacraments. So this testifies to the supernatural nature and origins of the Christian faith, um, to its divinely revealed nature by God. You know, in the second century, just a hundred years or so after Jesus's uh, death, maybe not even that, St. Ignatius of Antioch wrote, following the resurrection, now the virginity of Mary and her giving birth were hidden from the ruler of the age, he's referring to Satan, as was also the death of the Lord, three mysteries to be loudly proclaimed, which were accomplished in the silence of God. Because when they killed Jesus, they didn't understand what God was going to do. Even apparently the devil didn't understand it, or he would have avoided it. That's the point of all of this. That despite all the power that the world has, God prevails. So when you listen to that hymn, Silent Night, Holy Night, ponder what that silence means. Ponder the silence that the Christ child was born within those many centuries ago in Bethlehem. Have a beautiful Christmas.